This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today we're pleased to be speaking with Glenn Elmers. Glenn is the author of a new book, The Soul of Politics, Harry Jaffa and the Fight for America, from Encounter Books. Glenn holds a PhD in politics from the Claremont Graduate University, where he studied under Harry Jaffa. He's a visiting research fellow with Hillsdale College and a senior fellow with the Claremont Institute. He served as a speechwriter for two cabinet secretaries and has published numerous articles and essays in the Claremont Review of Books, the Review of Metaphysics, Modern Age, Law and Liberty, National Review, and American Greatness. Also joining us on this podcast is Seth Root, one of our interns with the James Wilson Institute. Seth, why don't you get us started? Glenn Elmers, thank you so much for coming on our program to discuss your great book on Harry Jaffa. We thought we'd start things off because many of our listeners are likely familiar with Professor Harry Jaffa, but for the benefit of our those who aren't who was Harry Jaffa, and why should more intellectuals, conservative intellectuals, be aware of his ideas and influence on conservatism? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on the program. Uh, Jaffa was a uh, very influential student of political philosophy. He taught most of his career at Claremont, uh, Claremont McKenna College and Claremont Graduate School in California. Uh, people may be familiar with his main institutional legacy, which is the Claremont Institute, fairly influential think tank based in California, now founded by some of Jaffa's students in 1979. Uh, Jaffa was known really as a Lincoln scholar, and he was uh, an influential Lincoln scholar who wrote two major books on Lincoln as a, as a real philosophic statesman. Uh, his pioneering book in 1959 was in a way the first really to take Lincoln seriously as a philosophic statesman and to make the case for that. But Jaffa was really primarily a student of political philosophy, especially classical political philosophy, and was one of the first uh, students of the great German emigre scholar Leo Strauss, who many listeners will know. Strauss uh, fled Nazi Germany and came to the United States, and in the middle of the 20th century, almost single-handedly revived the serious study of classical political thought, meaning the Greeks, especially Plato and Aristotle, not as antiquarian curiosities, but as sources of living wisdom, um, making the case that uh, truth indeed has transcendent meaning. Uh, Strauss very famously rejected what's called historicism, that all thought is sort of bound up in our particular time and place, and resurrected in a way the idea that classical political thought, classical political philosophy could supply uh, wisdom about human life that's still true today. And Jaffa, in a way, was a fairly political student of Strauss and applied what he learned from Strauss to the study of America. Of course, our founder and director, Hadley Arcus, was a student of Strauss, um, although uh, a little bit of a, a later era than, uh, than Jaffa. But Glenn, how do you, as, as you, know, you were very close with Jaffa, um, or, uh, or at least you knew Jaffa uh, well enough to have composed this fantastic book, um, how do you understand the uh, reconciling of um, sort of the 
the unique view that Jaffa uh, had with you know the unique you know views on on law and philosophy that Hadley Arcus has are are they are they truly one and the same or do you perhaps see some some differences? Well, um, uh, it's, it's not my uh, greatest focus of expertise. Um, um, I'm also uh, more of a classical political philosopher. I'm not trained as a lawyer. And in a way, Jaffa approached this also from the perspective of a political philosopher who wanted to understand the regime, the moral basis of the regime, and that includes uh, the functions of the courts and judges. And so sometimes he's criticized for not dwelling a lot on case law and how natural law philosophy applies to case law, but his approach was not to uh, make the case as a lawyer, but again, to make the case as a political philosopher. And he, in a way, through his study of Lincoln, and then later through his appreciation of, of the philosophic depth of the founding, uh, wanted to show uh, what you might call the, the moral basis of the American regime. And that's what informed his understanding of original intent jurisprudence, that the Constitution, um, as, a, as in a way, a document of a moral regime cannot be understood in abstraction from moral considerations. And Hadley has taken this theme and run with it uh, in a way that uh, uh, shows a much greater appreciation for case law and, and the particularities, whereas Jaffa remained a little bit more on the theoretical side. But I think their efforts complement each other. And for the most part, I think they're, they basically come down the same way, but perhaps from slightly different directions. Mm. So the title of your book is called The Soul of Politics. Explain why you chose this title. Well, for one thing, people don't know what the soul is anymore. Um, it's certainly a Christian idea, a Jewish idea, a biblical idea, but the ancients, Aristotle also talked about the soul. Aristotle has a very interesting treatise called De Anima, which is the Latin word for soul, or perisukes in Greek. Um, and it goes into uh, Aristotle's whole metaphysics of form and matter, body and soul, um, how to understand uh, the nature of reality. And for Aristotle, politics have a soul in the sense that they have a form, right? So the matter of political life is the people, their customs, their habits, their moral institutions, their laws. But the form is in a way the element of justice, the element of natural right that in a way defines the regime, defines the legitimacy of the regime, the element of justice that makes it what it is. And in the United States, that element of natural right is expressed, Jaffa thought, uh, most clearly in the Declaration of Independence and uh, the natural rights uh, equality of the, of the Declaration. And so in a way, the Declaration is the soul of the American regime. Uh, and so uh, I'm sort of hinting at that in the title of the book, all of those many implications of what soul means uh, that come out in various ways in Jaffa's writing. Mm -hmm. Mr. Elmers, I was wondering, you know, you wrote this book, you said in the beginning and in your introduction, that this book was for the young natural aristoi. Who and, and we were wondering, who are these people that you're writing to? And tell us why you're writing to this particular group of people. So the natural aristoi <clears throat> comes from a letter that uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote to John Adams, uh, I forget the year off the top of my head, but basically saying that the whole point of America was not to dispense with aristocracy, but to dispense with artificial aristocracy, right? One of the great misunderstandings of the emphasis on equality that Joffre was always correcting, and Hadley and, and the James Wilson Institute do this too, uh, 
Equal rights does not mean egalitarianism. It does not mean equal outcomes. It does not mean social engineering. It means equal opportunity, the equality of all individuals under the law. That's a very important distinction. So Jefferson's letter to, to Adams um, explains that uh, equality really means the equality of opportunity. And this, in a way, is meant to liberate what he calls the natural aristocracy as distinct from the artificial aristocracy of feudal Europe. Uh, inherited titles to rule, people who are serfs just because of who their parents were. And in the United States, there would be a natural aristocracy of talent, of virtue, of hard work, and that only in a regime of equal rights, only in a regime where um, everyone is protected under the law and everyone can succeed to the extent of their abilities, does the natural aristocracy emerge. And so Jefferson uses this Greek term aristoi to refer to this natural aristocracy. And uh, picking up on Aristotle, uh, Jefferson is basically uh, uh, making the case that Aristotle first made that in every decent regime, in every well-constructed polity, it is the natural aristocrats, the, what he calls the moral gentlemen, who should be the natural rulers. And these moral gentlemen are civically engaged, responsible citizens who care about the regime and who have the virtue, the self-discipline, uh, the wherewithal uh, to take political responsibility. And these moral gentlemen, uh, the people who ought to be politically engaged and upon whom the fate of our regime will depend, are the people I'm trying to reach with this book because I think it has something to say to them. So you, you actually think that the natural aristocrats, they may not be you know, the budding 21-year-old who is, is ready to take the world by storm after college, right? I mean, it's, it's really, it's really any, anyone that, that feels that there is something corrupt in our regime and wants to remedy it and knows that the remedies are not going to be found from within the man, but rather from understanding those natural limitations on what you know, man is capable of doing himself or herself, right? It's almost like our natural aristoi are those that understand the inherent limitations of the human condition but also see that one, one's role can be to channel those, right? Sure, sure. Right, so I'm appealing especially, so I, you know, talking to younger people, uh, especially younger conservatives, a lot of them are very cynical, very disaffected, and you can understand why. You know, I've, uh, in the last couple of years, I learned about the term clown world, <laughs> which is a term uh, some younger guys, especially guys, but, you know, women too, on the right, and they, they have a point. What they're talking about is, is the, the corrupt, the hollow establishment that's been exposed now. And they're very cynical about uh, the sort of the broken society that they're inheriting now as they grow up. And, and, and that's perfectly understandable. But what you see in some of them is a, a turning away from politics, a turning away, a turning to people like Nietzsche, right? Thinking that because modern society is corrupt and decadent, it's best just to turn their backs on it. And you see you know, some elements of conservative Catholics and other ways, a, a turning away from politics, uh, you know, in some extreme cases, you know, these Nietzscheans, you know, to a sort of manliness, they want to be pirates, you know, you read about some of these things. And what my book wants to show is um, there is a better alternative to that that I think Jaffa points to, where you can be manly, you can be virtuous, and you can still uh, be civically engaged, you can still mm -hmm. be politically engaged. Um, and so the natural aristocrats are those people who, who care about virtue, who care about manliness, who have that thumos, that spiritedness, 
um, and to show them why uh, the highest form of practical wisdom in the classical world was statesmanship, prudence, um, and that it's uh, politics where they can best exercise their virtue rather than turning away from politics. Mm. Uh, that actually blends nicely into our next uh, segment. Um, I mean, in, 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 our, in, our, in our sort of fallen age, there's many things that people misconstrue in the world of politics, such as what we mean by extremism, what, are you, what, what does it mean to have natural rights, um, what, what are our principled grounds for, for being prudent. Um, and those are really, right, the elements of statesmanship, understanding you know, sort of how those fit into, um, uh, in our Republican system, you know, he or she who has the responsibility of being, you know, our caretaker in some way um, for this for this regime. Why have we lost that? <laughs> I mean, what what what, you know, what what you know what were those principles that you know we were blessed to have Lincoln inhabit that we just aren't seeing in you know statesmen of our own day? Yeah, that's a complicated story, and I'm not smart enough to know all the answers. Um, part of it is the idea, uh, which is hard for people to accept, that self-government is hard. Um, this is something that Jaffa brought out, uh, that the founders explain, but we sometimes forget. There's a wonderful passage that Lincoln uses in a speech where he talks about rising to equality. And what he means is, again, the natural rights equality of the Declaration is not egalitarianism. It's actually a difficult thing, right? To exercise your equal natural rights means you have to make it on your own. <laughs> and so a regime of self-government depends on a level of uh, responsibility and moral probity and spiritedness and assertiveness that can be challenging. Now, when you combine that with the philosophical attack on the principles of the founding that was launched, you know, 100 years ago or so by the progressives and the steady, you know, unrelenting onslaught by the left to uh, you know, undermine and, and uh, distort the understanding of the founding. Well, you put all that together and it's not surprising <laughs> that we've come to where we are. Um, Mr. Elmers, I mean, Jaffa wrote uh, two really great works, one of them being Crisis of the House Divided. And through Crisis of the House Divided, we get a pretty good detail of Abraham Lincoln's political philosophy and also a very close read of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And in your book, you, you kind of give three big themes in, in the crisis of the highest divided. Uh, one is the theme of natural right. The other is the theme of equality. The last theme is the tension between consent and wisdom. And we were wondering if you could elaborate on this tension and explain just why consent and wisdom is in conflict here. Right. So um, this is an old problem that, again, goes back to classical Greek thought, but appears very clearly and sharply in the 1850s in the United States. And it comes up, it's really the central theme of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Lincoln and Douglas are running for the Illinois Senate race in 1858, and the, both men would then, two years later, run for presidency. So the Lincoln-Douglas debates were, in a way, prefigured the 1860 presidential race. And the central theme there is slavery. And, and how can a Republican government have slavery? And, and what are we going to do about it? And Douglas's position was called popular sovereignty, which is let the people decide. Let the people of each federal territory decide whether they want slavery or not. And Lincoln's position is you cannot have Republican government that is completely indifferent to moral questions and especially cannot be indifferent to the injustice of slavery, right? So the, so the problem there, the problem of Republican government, which is 
what I'm talking about here between consent and wisdom is what happens when the people consent to something that they really ought not to, right? What happens when they consent to something that undermines the basis of consent, right? Consent has to be, again, and this goes back to uh, natural rights jurisprudence and the whole question of uh, how can we understand Republican government apart from the moral considerations that make Republican government possible, right? So you can't consent to something that undermines the very principles of Republican government itself, namely slavery. And so this tension, the idea that the people would consent to something that is inherently unjust, is the problem that we see uh, in slavery, but it's not limited to that. It's, it's an enduring problem anytime you have self-government. You write that Jaffa changed his mind about America and the founders between crisis and then his second major work, New Birth of Freedom. Can you explain this change and why it's so important and maybe how it came to influence how we appreciate you know, crisis and then also um, how Jaffa came to revise um, mm -hmm. an understanding of the Declaration vis-a-vis -vis the Constitution? Sure, sure. So uh, we have to take just a little two minutes of a, of a, a parenthetical explanation of uh, Straussian understanding of political philosophy. So Leo Strauss had taught that the modern world, uh, the development of modern political philosophy, beginning with thinkers in the early modern era, 15th, 16th century, people like Machiavelli, Hobbes, Spinoza, uh, Bacon, you know, figures that are probably well known to most educated people, launched uh, modern philosophy in a way uh, against both classical and Christian thought. And the idea was um, basically to lower the ends of government, to get rid of all that talk about virtue and the soul, and just focus on the needs of the body to make politics uh, satisfy men's passions, the needs of the body. And um, Strauss clearly saw this. It was a real thing. He writes about it. Um, uh, this comes up in... in uh, John Locke, uh, who talks about man's acquisitive inclinations. The difficulty there is um, how to understand America, right? And so, uh, what Jaffa came, so when Jaffa wrote Crisis in 1959, he was, in this, he was under the view, partly influenced by what he thought he had learned from Strauss, that America was just low and base and acquisitive and just focused on the passions because it was modern. And he later came to see that America as an achievement of statesmanship is a political phenomenon, and it can't simply be reduced to a chapter in the development of modern philosophy, right? Statesmanship and theory are two different things. And so the American founding as an act of statesmanship combined elements of classical and modern thought. It was a practical achievement that wasn't just an epiphenomenon of modern philosophy. And so uh, where he had first seen Lincoln as basically saving uh, America from its low origins, he later came to see that there were elements of classical thought. Uh, there was a focus on virtue, on education, on the moral basis of Republican government already there in the founding. And so in a way, he came to appreciate that the founding didn't need to be saved by Lincoln. You know, he, he liked to point out later on that the Declaration ends by saying that the founders pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. That's a very classical idea, and it's not compatible with this idea that America is just low and modern. Yeah, we, we, we see that argument about the seeds of our current societal um, uh, 
uh, discontent uh, were, were planted by the founders. And we don't only hear that necessarily from the radical left. Uh, we hear it from uh, otherwise conservative skeptics um, on, on the founding as well. How do you kind of see that block, especially those on the right, how do you see them as being convinced um, that the founding was indeed inhabited by imperfect men, but they tapped into true principles? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an old argument. Sometimes I despair of ever making progress uh, with certain people because we rehash the same arguments over and over again. A lot of this turns on what we were discussing a few moments ago about um, equality. And there's certainly an argument among some people on the right that equality will always descend into egalitarianism. You can't have a regime based on equality. That won't ultimately become debased because people will always want to translate that into equal outcomes. And my response to that is, well, what alternative exactly are you proposing? You know, you hear people make these kind of think sort of silly and contrived arguments. Well, we should go back to some form of aristocracy or something like that. But, I mean, that's just not feasible and realistic. And there's not going to be any kind of regime in the modern world that doesn't recognize the equal rights of all people. And if you want aristocracy, you should want the kind of natural aristocracy that Jefferson talked about. And that absolutely requires equality under the law. I don't know of anyone who wants to go back to artificial aristocracy. I mean, there may be some, you know, people who sort of pine for the old Middle Ages. <laughs> you know, Russell Kirk sort of did that. But, you know, it's, it's um, frustrating in a way. Jaffa, you know, made this argument all uh, through his life. He died in 2015. And those of us affiliated with the Claremont Institute are still making this argument that political equality doesn't mean egalitarianism. And there's just a basic misunderstanding there. And so as, as far as the, you know, sort of the, the rift um, within the right as being, you know, much more based on philosophy than, you know, practicalities, because I think, you know, oftentimes when, I, when I'm in discussions with um, friends of mine on the right who look at the ills of our age, uh, our disagreements are not so much on what actually, you know, ails our our, our culture and our politics, but more on what gave rise to those conditions. And so I guess I'm, 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 I'm still curious, if we are to not only convince those who we share broad agreement with, but also you know, convince our, maybe our more apathetic you know, fellow citizens, what is the most convincing case to be made to look to the founders, again, as, as um, imperfect, but still um, uh, a, a collection of um, you know, men who were channeling that wisdom of the ages, and to convince our fellow citizens that no, these you know these the, these issues are very very much still rooted in the same issues that they had to confront. Right. So um, Jaffa spent a long time articulating uh, a kind of comprehensive moral and political theory uh, in the founding, which really turned on an understanding of human nature. He, he made an argument which is often misunderstood, and he was sometimes teased for it, uh, but I think it's valid, uh, of almost seeming to equate Aristotle and John Locke. And his point was, one of his favorite phrases was, natural right, this is from Aristotle, natural right is changeable. Prudence and natural right, in Jaffa's mind, were almost the same thing. Prudence is the virtue of the statesman par excellence. 
natural right is simply understanding what is the right thing to do under these circumstances. In a way, both of those, which come out of Aristotle again, mean the same thing. And so Jaffa's argument was, if Aristotle was alive in the modern world in the 18th century, confronting modern conditions, namely you know, the advent of monotheism, what had happened with, with feudalism in, in, in Europe, and tried to come up with uh, the best possible decent regime that would secure virtue and happiness, he would have come up with something very like what Locke taught and what the founders implemented, simply because it was the most prudent way to implement a regime of equality under law to promote human happiness. And if someone can come up with a better idea, I'd like to hear it. <laughs> but I'm not aware of one that both recognizes the limitations and, and, and the direction, to use a classical word, the teleology of human nature, and yet accounts for the peculiar circumstances of the modern world. You know, we're not going to revive the ancient Greek polis. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and so the, the question is, you know, if you think you have a better idea than James Madison, uh, I'd like to hear it. You mentioned, you, you kind of teased this in, in your answer, um, but in chapter four of your book, you, you talk about the distinction between natural right versus political rights. And uh, I was wondering for the benefit of the listeners, if you could give us a definition of each and then why this distinction is important in, in politics today. Sure. So we're getting into some uh, somewhat abstruse political theory here, but it's a very interesting and important point. So Plato had said that um, no actual regime can ever perfectly implement natural right. So Plato's famous dialogue, The Republic, is about the best city in speech. And for Plato, the perfect ideas what were called the forms, or the eidos in Greek, existed, had some kind of real existence out there somewhere. And that these perfect ideas, these pure ideas, are how we understand reality. And everything that we actually see, that we experience, is just sort of an imitation or an image of that, including political life. And so even the best actual regime will always just be a pale imitation of the perfect, the best regime in speech. And Aristotle, who is in a way much more practical and less theoretical than Plato, says, no, no, the way to understand reality is to see things as they actually are, right, as they actually occur in nature. And so he wasn't really interested. He actually critiqued this idea of the platonic forms existing out there, some kind of mystical entities, and said, no, let's focus on the here and now. We know what's good for humans by looking at how humans actually exist, right? We understand their nature, and that gives us an idea of what human perfection is. We look at the way politics actually operates, and that gives us an idea of what the best political regime is. And so it was much more practically focused. And so for Aristotle, natural right, if, it's, if you understand it as kind of this abstract idea of perfection, only exists in speech or in theory. But political right is the way natural right actually manifests itself or appears in an actual political regime. And this goes back again to that idea of prudence, right? What's interesting and what's important for Aristotle is, okay, how does a conception of justice, a theoretical idea of what's best for man, get implemented in our present circumstances? You know, these people living in this country, you know, with this kind of religion, these kind of habits, what is the best thing we can do for these people under this circumstance? And that's political right. <laughs> I don't know if that was too complicated, but uh, that's the five-minute uh, explanation of political right versus natural right. Well, I, I guess, I mean, since you mentioned prudence, you know, how does 
prudence factor into political rights for, for statesmen? So prudence is a word that I actually spend some time in the book discussing because it's so misunderstood today. I mean, I'm, people who are uh, quite a bit younger might not remember these old Saturday Night Live sketches. Maybe you've seen them on YouTube or something where Dana Carvey, who was playing the first George Bush, President George Bush, would say, wouldn't be prudent. And what, what he meant is a kind of, you know, low, timid, calculating understanding of prudence, right? A kind of a cost-benefit analysis, uh, caution. But that's not what Aristotle meant by prudence. For Aristotle, prudence was, the, was practical wisdom. It was the practical virtue par excellence. It was the virtue of the statesman. It meant knowing the right thing to do at the right time. Uh, in medieval scholastic philosophy, it was, called, it was defined as right reason applied to action. And prudence is, in a way, the political virtue, because it means knowing what is the best thing we can do here and now under these circumstances. And so it's a terribly important word that's really completely forgotten and misunderstood today, which is why I spend several pages <laughs> trying to explain it in the book. Well, true, true excellence comes, comes through prudence. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old saying I've heard. I guess the question is really um, brought home, though, when a statesman has the assurance that he is on the side of the majority, though. And the majority is going to give that statesman wide cover for actions that begin to butt up against those limits of what we mean by prudence. So how do you think of prudence when it comes to the connection between more, uh, you know, moral and just rule, but also maybe what the majority wants? Yeah, in a way, this goes back to what we were just talking about a few moments ago, uh, which is the, the tension between wisdom and consent, right? This is the great problem that Lincoln confronted in 1858, is what happens if the majority wants to do something that's unjust? And one of the elements of great statesmanship is to find a way to move the country, move the people uh, in the direction of justice and away from consenting to something that the very foundation of their own form of government uh, uh, that's incompatible with the very foundation of, of Republican government. We don't see a lot of prudent statesmen today, and you know it would be nice if we could get a, a Lincoln or a Churchill or a Washington to emerge on the scene. I, don't, I guess we can just keep our fingers crossed. But <laughs> um, yeah, part of it is you know we don't teach people about any of these things, and so you know even if you, we had someone with a sort of natural talent. There's so much uh, misunderstanding and indoctrination and, and uh, bad thinking going around. It's very hard for someone to apply their natural talents in a way that uh, uh, could actually be useful. <laughs> yeah, one of, the, one of the lines that we often hear um, Hadley Arcus say, I think he's, he's paraphrasing Lincoln, is uh, the only operational form of government is majority rule under constitutional restraint. I thought... That might be a, a, a nice, interesting jumping off point, though, to ask if it might be better to understand Lincoln here as arguing that um, legitimate constitutional restraint must be understood as an exercise of prudence and prudence as understood from uh, natural law. Right, right. Um, let me just move that in a slightly different direction, if, sure. if it's okay, because uh, there's a day, it just occurs to me as we were talking, given the, is it okay to say that we live under a left-wing oligarchy today that is not terribly 
interested in consent. <laughs> the challenge for Lincoln was not simply to impose his own will, right? So this is a critique that you hear against Lincoln a lot from more traditionalist paleoconservative critics. And Jaffa really resisted that. Lincoln was very conscientious of the restraints he operated under. Prudence does not mean someone self-appointed, you know, self-appointed superior person imposing his vision of justice. That's not, it means just the opposite. It means finding a way to bring the consent of the people, uh, the opinion, the, the majority of the opinion around to a right way of thinking. It's not a matter of force. It's not a matter of imposing your will. And so the modern administrative state that we live under, the rule of expertise that we live under, really disregards consent and, and uh, which is really the, under social contract theory, the only legitimate basis of constitutional government is the consent of the people, and you cannot ignore that. And so that's a very important thing to keep in mind. It's statesmanship and prudence is not just imposing a conception of justice. It's, it's uh, directing the forces of politics in a way that respect the consent of the majority. As a follow-up, Glenn, we, we've talked a lot in within the right, you know, about, I don't know, uh, a David French's type surrendering of issues or, or, or the culture war and, and such. And then you have the Sarab Amari who's willing to impose his conception of justice into the, the realm. And so I was wondering in, in that vein, um, what, um, as you were talking, I was just thinking of this, what what do you see in, in that regard um, and how sh and and how should the conservative movement kind of move towards? Is there a third way that that, that you're seeing in, in that regard or no? Uh, I, it's, there's been so much ink spilled and, and discussion uh, devoted to the French Amari debate. I'm not really sure I have anything useful to add. I think Jaffa understood uh, that debate and those issues long before either of those guys came along. And, and the issues themselves uh, come up in the book, uh, and, and I just don't want to wade into that particular dispute. Look, I mean, everything that Hadley Arcus talks about, and James Wilson Institute does, and what Jaffa talked about, is all based on what does it mean to say uh, that there has to be a moral basis for Republican government. And that is not a matter of, of um, you know, whatever the people decide. That's just positivism, which all of us are always <laughs> uh, arguing against and explaining why positivism is wrong and doesn't work. Um, and so there has to be a moral foundation of, of Republican government, and that has to be grounded in an objective understanding of morality, which is based in human nature, which is an objective fact. Now, again, it's not a matter of just saying, well, I know what's better for everyone in imposing it. There's always a balance, which is where prudence comes in, between recognizing that objective basis of morality and persuading people through um, you know, prudent rhetoric and sound political action. Yeah, yeah. So one of the great intra-conservative debates of the past 50 years was Jaffa, joined by, of course, Adelie Arcus, against the Robert Bork and Antonin Scalia on the positive law and natural law, with the Constitution and the Declaration being stand-ins, and also the role of the judge. Can you briefly summarize those competing arguments and how they relate to the battle for the soul of conservatism? Sure. So uh, Jaffa had learned about the critique of positivism long before he ever got into really deep into his study of America and especially uh, original intent jurisprudence. When he studied 
uh, Plato's Republic with Leo Strauss in 1946 at the New School for Social Research. And Strauss was giving a course on the Republic and explains, and this is in one of the transcripts of Strauss's course, that the whole Republic is basically Socrates making the case against positivism, right? Uh, there's a famous character in the Republic called Thrasymachus, who basically makes the positivist argument that, uh, to quote the famous line, justice is the interest of the stronger. Uh, and that's in a way the argument that Stephen Douglas was making in the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858. Whatever the majority decides, that's what's just. And there's a wonderful story I recount in the book, which, and, and Jaffa would tell this all the time when he was alive, how he had read the Republic, he learned about this argument between Socrates and Thrasymachus about the nature of justice. And then a year later, he's in a used bookstore in downtown Manhattan, picks up a copy of the Lincoln-Douglas debates and is flipping through it in the aisles. And he's reading these, you know, Lincoln on one side, arguing for natural right. Douglas on the other side, arguing for basically positivism, pure majoritarianism. And he says to himself, holy cow, <laughs> this is Plato. And what was amazing is Strauss had taught him that these arguments that the ancient Greeks were talking about are real. They're still true. It's not just some antiquarian curiosity. This is, you know, these are living issues of, of human life. And it was brought home to Jaffa when he's reading, oh, wow, <laughs> here's these two guys running for Senate in 1858, basically recapitulating this argument between Socrates and Thrasymachus. And so that's where Jaffa first was exposed to this critique of positivism, this idea that, you know, what's just is whatever the law says is just, and which is just majority rule. So that's the background. I'm sorry for this long tangent, but that's the background for where um, Jaffa comes into his critique of Bork and Rehnquist and the others, who basically make this uh, anti-Socratic argument that, the law is whatever the people decide, uh, and beyond that, we can't have any understanding of justice or morality, and so we just set all that aside and just obey the letter of the law, regardless of, of any moral considerations. And so, um, specifically on, on, on the role of the judge, Jaffa always understood this argument of Lincoln's that no matter what precise role in the constitutional scheme we're talking about, be it the president, be it an individual legislator, or be it a judge, each of them had an independent duty to interpret the Constitution um, individually. And if the understanding of the Constitution is um, in light of natural law and natural right, when one of the other branches errs, it's that other individual actor within the third branch, it's, it's his or her job to be an expositor. Um, for the you know, the understanding of the Constitution according to, to natural right. And yet, that's the strongest pushback we get today from those on the right, those that think that actually, once the Supreme Court um, makes a decision, it's final. There's no, there's no pushing back on it, either from within the court or um, from, from the other branches. Um, and you know, Jaffa and, and Hadley Arcus, you know, Still, they, they push back on this uh, on this idea strongly. But what's made it so entrenched? I mean, I mean, you know, the founders, of course, never envisioned um, the court as you know being able to declare a monopoly on an understanding of the Constitution. <laughs> right. Yeah, I do. Know. It's 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 baffling. Um, I don't know uh, why some people on the right, uh, you know, Lincoln's argument against this in his great speech on the Dred Scott case uh, seems to me very persuasive. 
Um, you know, what's all the more odd about this is we've been losing in the courts for 100 years. You know, every once in a while there's a little minor victory, and I don't want to discount those. But, you know, how many times have we thought, oh, we've got a great now, we've got a great justice on the court and things are going to turn around and then we get disappointed. And we, <laughs> we've been disappointed over and over and over again. And what's really happening, and, you know, if you look over the long term, is there's a kind of a ratchet effect, right? The court moves to the left and every once in a while we manage to sort of hold the line a little bit. But it never really moves back in the other direction, right? The ratchet just keeps turning more and more and more towards administrative government, uh, away from you know the constitutionalism as the founders understood it, and we get small victories in property rights and religious liberty here and there, but uh, you know it's it's pretty small potatoes. Uh, and if you want to you know hinge the fate of republican government, of self government, of constitutional government uh, on these you know tenuous victories on the Supreme Court, that seems to me a very shaky ground. And so I, I don't understand, you know, is it that uh, we're preoccupied with the Federalist Society and we think they're going to save the United States? I don't, I don't know what the explanation is for this uh, judicial supremacy uh, argument on the right. It's baffling. <laughs> and I think, I think, if I may opine briefly, yeah. I, I think a lot of it has to do with bringing forth a class of politicians um, in, in the political branches that would seek to avoid the most penetrating moral issues. And so they're more than happy to punt a lot of these um, questions to the courts. But the courts themselves, they wholly, at least the, the justices on the right, they, 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 they wholly enjoy um, uh, participating in this game of hot potato. And so should we be surprised that justices on the left uh, encounter no resistance when they put forth a moral understanding of the document, and they're not even countered by, um, you know, a, a, an understanding uh, of, of the Constitution as instantiating the principles of the Declaration. No, and I think I think it's almost the worst own goal one could imagine. <laughs> right. I mean, so so part of it is so Jaffa played a very influential role in shaping the conservative movement in the '60s, '70s, '80s, partly because he was very good friends with Bill Buckley. And, and he did play an important role in pushing out uh, some of the worst elements of the right uh, and, and really persuading Buckley to embrace a more uh, American, uh, sort of a more, f a greater focus on the founding as the definition of, of conservatism and not some of these uh, odder strands that were appearing in the pages of National Review. But Jaffa's real emphasis was this. Um, Conservatives don't know uh, what they stand for because they don't know what they're trying to conserve. And, and, <laughs> and part of that was a reluctance to embrace the idea that you can talk about, okay, I think a lot of conservatives uh, get spooked by the fact that any discussion of morality seems to favor the left, right? Um, they recognize you can certainly have morality based on revelation, but, but Obviously, there's a kind of hesitancy to impose uh, uh, moral arguments directly out of the Bible into the public square. Yeah. But because so many conservatives don't think that there's an objective, moral, rational basis for morality, they, they prefer not to talk about these things at all. And all that does is just concede the ground totally to the left, which is perfectly happy to make arguments about justice all day long. And so if Republicans run away from moral arguments, if they run away from talking about justice, 
all they're doing is just allowing the left to control the public debate on this. And of course, that's a terrible mistake, and that's partly why we're in the condition we're in now. You talk in Chapter 5 about historical determinism and how Jaffa believed there was, quote, a thread between Jesus's promises to Jefferson's proclamation. <laughs> how is that different from the type of historicism we see today? Right. So this is um, a long and sort of complicated part of the book, and I'm expecting it might be somewhat con uh, uh, controversial. Jaffa, I think, did see a kind of historical development in the modern world that in a way culminates in America. Not, and and it, it's hard to, to explain all this uh, in, in a short interview. Um, there are elements in Jaffa's thought that seem to indicate a kind of uh, historical process. I think what he was doing, though, was uh, in a way appropriating uh, the, the rhetoric and logic of historical progress, which is so powerful in the modern world and even in the American psyche. I mean, even the founders with their talk of Novus Ordo Seclorum, a new order of the ages, uh, so, and you know, this idea of America as having a kind of historical destiny is a very well-established old idea and very powerful. And Jaffa saw that it had been basically used by the left to justify their belief in progress. And since the left gets to define progress, they get to define where the regime is going and what the Constitution is supposed to mean and all that. And Jaffa wanted to push back and sort of take some of that logic and rhetoric back and use it for his own purposes. And so he developed a kind of alternate or soft historicism, uh, which emphasized God and nature as against uh, science and history <laughs> on the left. Right, so he basically, uh, turned Hegel and Aristotle uh, into Madison and Jefferson. <laughs> Again, it's, it's, it's a difficult uh, and somewhat controversial part of the book, which uh, I expect to get some pushback on. But it, there's, there's elements in Jaffa's thought that are clearly seem to indicate some kind of historical development that have to be accounted for. So, Glenn, it sounds like from your book that this is an original research, uh, which includes a lot of different things that haven't been shared before, it sounds like. And so we were wondering how your original research had helped us uh, better understand Jaffa's views. Sure. So uh, just to go a little background, um, part of this project emerged because Jaffa's papers, which are at Hillsdale College in Michigan, uh, which acquired them, uh, even though Jaffa taught at Claremont, have been made accessible and a lot of it is being digitized and so I went there both in person and accessed a lot of it online and there's a tremendous amount of material there's at least three filing cabinets just of his letters plus lots and lots of other stuff and I haven't even had a chance to go through all of it myself but having access to that in a way allowed me to sort of I mean Jaffa wrote and published a tremendous amount and so you could easily write a book just looking at his published works but Having access to his letters and his private papers and some of his unpublished material was, was really neat. And, and um, the fact that that became available was part of the impetus for the book. There's really nothing in his private papers that shocked me. I mean, it's not like Jaffa says anywhere, by the way, I'm really a nihilist or, or anything like that. But it does uh, flesh out uh, a lot of his thinking. There's things he says in his private letters which really capture and crystallize some of his thought very nicely. And I quote from a lot of the letters in the book, some of which are, weren't even known to 
to his close friends and students. So there's, there's interesting and new material in there that even Jaffa students may not be familiar with. But nothing, nothing that really radically uh, altered the conception of Jaffa you would have if you were familiar with his published writings. Now, as we're drawing to a close, what do you hope the reader will get out of reading your book to help reclaim America? People have different views on how serious state of the country is. Uh, I have close friends who are extremely pessimistic. I have friends who are, you know, think we could have a good midterm election and maybe even recapture the White House. Setting all that aside, clearly re the regime is going through some sort of massive uh, revolutionary change. And I don't, even, even if we have great political victories in the next few years, I don't think we're ever going to quite go back to any kind of old normal. We're never quite going to go back to the way things used to be. And that means that we're now confronting, as a people, as citizens, very fundamental questions, not just about the Constitution itself and how it works, although those are fundamental questions, but even deeper than that. You know, what is the Constitution based on? Social compact theory, equal natural rights. Again, going back to these issues of the Declaration of Independence. And those, in turn, go back to even more fundamental questions about, you know, there's, there's a fairly theoretical part of the book on how Joffe understood epistemology, which is a fancy word for, like, how do human beings know anything? How do we understand the world? And those questions, those metaphysical questions, have political implications, right? What is human nature? Is, is the world actually out there, or is it just a fiction <laughs> of our imagination? Those seemingly abstract theoretical questions turn out to have important political ramifications. And to the degree that the country is now really getting down to really radical, which is the Latin word for root, now that we're getting down to the roots of things, these very basic fundamental questions become really important. And Jaffa thought about them and wrote about them and taught about them in a way uh, as a political philosopher, but also as an American patriot. And so in a way that I think could be very useful for people today. And Glenn, do you think that the greater appreciation for um, a more coherent moral understanding of the American project could in fact cut towards another great awakening, uh, an interest in understanding why the, uh, the American experiment was rooted in something more than either blood and soil nationalism, or just this kind of unique, whimsical idea? Do you think there's, there's, a, there's, there's, there's a more coherent understanding that not only you know, combines the two, but also does a much better job at showing you know, what are those principles that would be applicable to all men at all times, but we just so happen to be blessed with a founding um, that had... Um, men who rose to the occasion and channeled those principles and it's still their 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 great um gift that that they've given to us and that we've inherited right i mean one massive uh important topic for both strauss and jaffa which we really didn't talk about is reason and revelation you talk about a great awakening um strauss very famously said that the alternatives of reason and revelation, the life of skeptical inquiry versus the life of obedient piety, Athens and Jerusalem uh, being the great representatives of those, were the source of the dynamic vitality of Western civilization, right? Neither conquers the other. Both represent uh, alternatives for the human soul, you know, the life of 
of unrelenting inquiry, the life of obedience to God. But neither, but both have to be present. And, and the presence of both in the history of Western civilization was an absolutely fundamental fact that was behind the great success of the West. And Jaffa then, with his interest in America, sees that the same thing is true of America in particular. Religious liberty, in a way, protects government from religion, but protects religion from government. And this reciprocal uh, relationship is, in a way, the source of the great dynamic vitality of America. Uh, and so Jaffa also said that modern philosophy was a threat equally to reason and to the Bible. And so both reason and the Bible, in a way, make common cause, uh, both for their importance in human life, for their mutual understanding of the importance of morality, both for individuals and for human beings, and in the sense that they're both threatened by the radical skepticism and nihilism of modern philosophy. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. I'm always struck, Glenn, by the passion of Jaffa's you know, closest students. And um, you know, one of the things I, I just take is, uh, as a, you know, a devoted former student of Hadley Arcus is that um, there's just something so infectious about the ideas. You know, our listeners, I, I hope, were able to appreciate that. You know, Glenn is Jaffa manifest um, for another age, and so um, I hope I hope Professor Jaffa, who I've never met, but but I feel like I've known him through his works and through people like Glenn. Um, uh, I hope he's smiling down at uh, the conversations that we're still having to this day. Um, so, Glenn, thank you so much just for the gift of your presence, um, and we hope our listeners will enjoy the book. We'll provide a link um, on our website and um, not only to Amazon. Uh, <laughs> Encounter Books. <laughs> Encounter Books, of yes. course. Uh, but thank you so much, Glenn. Thank you for having me. It's been really a delightful conversation and I really appreciate it. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.